0: Thanks, Nathan, for the introduction. Um, as mentioned, I'm from GiveWell. We're a nonprofit organisation that searches for the most cost-effective giving opportunities in global health and development. We direct approximately $150 million per year to our recommended top charities. and We publish all our research online, free, so that any potential donor can go online and, and take a look for themselves. In order to uh, evaluate the cost-effectiveness of a charity's intervention, we need to extrapolate estimates of the the effect of that intervention from academic studies that were conducted in a different context. In this presentation, I'm going to discuss some of the challenges that arise when we try to do that. This is uh, known as the problem of external validity or generalizability. Now, I'm by no means the first person to talk about this uh, problem, even at this conference. But before I started work at GiveWell about 18 months ago, I don't think I really appreciated what it looks like to try to tackle the problem of external validity in practice or quite how difficult it can be. So over the next 20 minutes, I'm going to run through two case studies from projects that I've worked on to try to give you a bit more of an understanding of the kind of questions that come up when we're trying to understand uh, external validity in practice. And by doing so, hopefully, I'll also give you a bit of a sense for what some of the day-to-day work looks like on the research team at GiveWell. Okay, so one of our recommended top charities, GiveDirectly, provides unconditional cash transfers to households in Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda. And one of the potential concerns with these cash transfers is that they may have a negative, they may cause a negative spillover effect on the consumption levels of individuals who don't receive the transfers themselves. So we investigated this possibility. For the purpose of this presentation, I'm going to focus on across village spillover effects only. In other words, do I experience a decrease in my consumption in real terms because the village next to me received cash transfers? And I'm going to focus on one of the main mechanisms for these across village spillover effects on consumption, and that is a change in prices. So following a cash transfer, there'll be an increase in demand and prices for goods in the treated villages, and that creates an arbitrage opportunity. An individual could purchase a good in an untreated village, transport it to a treated village, sell it at a higher price and make a profit. And in doing so, they're going to increase demand for the good in the untreated village, and so bid the price up there as well. And that's going to make households in the untreated villages worse off. So for a bit of context, some academic studies have tried to estimate these spillover effects, often using something that's known as a randomized saturation design, and that works broadly as follows. Villages are organized into clusters, and for illustration, I've drawn two clusters on this figure. In some clusters, one-third of villages are treated. These are known as low-saturation clusters, like the one on the left. And in other clusters, two-thirds of villages are treated, and they are known as high-saturation clusters, like the one on the right. Which clusters are assigned to the low and the high saturation status is determined randomly. And then within each cluster, which village is assigned to the treatment and to the control is also determined randomly. And the treated villages here are the villages that are shaded in grey. Now using this design, we can take the consumption of a household in an untreated village in a high saturation cluster and compare that their consumption to the consumption of a household in an untreated village in a low saturation cluster. And the difference in their consumption is going to tell us the effect of being surrounded by an extra one third of treated villages. And within this design, we can also estimate spillover effects at different distances. The question then is, how do we take an estimate of a spillover effect from some academic study like this and apply it to a specific charities program in practice like GiveDirectly, in some other context? I'm going to discuss two uh, difficulties that come up when we try to do this. So let's take some hypothetical academic study. Let's suppose we've been able to estimate the effect of being surrounded by an extra one-third of treated villages, uh, having an extra one-third of treated villages in your regions. Uh, uh, as before, as well, the, uh, the treated villages are shaded in grey and the black Xs indicate the households that live in the untreated villages. And the red stars here indicate the three marketplaces that exist in this region. So following a cash transfer, there'll be an increase in prices in the market in the treated village, which is here is labelled labeled as market one. Now, the extent to which prices arbitrage across markets depends on how easy it is to transport goods between them. Market two is very close to market one. It's very easy to transport goods there, and so prices are going to increase in market two, and the households that are served by market two are going to experience a decrease in their consumption in real terms. But market three is much further away from market one. It's much harder to transport goods to market three, and so accordingly prices aren't going to increase much in market three, and the houses that are served by that market aren't going to be affected much by the cash transfers in the treated villages. So in this academic study, we might expect to see a fairly limited spillover effect on the consumption of households in the untreated villages. But let's suppose that our charity operates in a different setting, more specifically a setting where markets are more integrated economically. So let's suppose there's now a train line that links markets one to three in the charity setting. It's now much easier to transport goods from market one to market three, and so accordingly prices will increase in market three, and the households that are served by market market three are now going to experience a decrease in their consumption in real terms. So in this charity setting, we'd expect to see probably quite a bit higher spillover effects on the consumption of households in the untreated villages than in the academic study setting. Now, this is obviously a very simplified example. But the point here is that if we want to extrapolate a a spillover effect from an academic study to a specific charity's programme, we need to take into account the degree to which markets are economically integrated. And if we fail to do that, we're going to arrive at quite inaccurate predictions about the size of spillover effects. Okay, so how do we deal with this in practice? Unfortunately, we're not, amongst the academic uh, studies that we've reviewed, we've not seen uh, evidence, empirical evidence to tell us the extent to which the decline of spillover uh, spillover effects with distance depends on the extent to which markets are economically integrated. So ultimately, we're probably going to need further academic study of this. For the time being, what we've done is we have placed a much greater weight on studies that were conducted in contexts that are more like GiveDirectly's context in terms of the degree of integratedness of markets. So, for example, we place very little weight on a study that was conducted in the Philippines uh, because that study covered markets across multiple different islands, and we suspect that markets across islands are probably a lot less economically integrated than markets in GiveDirectly's setting. Okay. Let's go back to the original hypothetical study setting, um, to, to discuss a second challenge that comes up. So let's assume that prices arbitrage as they did again originally. Prices increase in market two following the cash transfer, but they don't increase much in market three. Now let's move to another charity setting where the spatial distribution of households is in the untreated villages is very different. So in this figure, we can see that a much higher proportion of the households in the untreated villages live close to the treated villages and are served by markets one and two where we know that prices have increased. So again, in this charity setting, we probably expect to see quite a bit higher spillover effects on the consumption of households in the untreated villages compared to the academic study setting. So if we want to extrapolate an estimate from the academic study to this specific charity's program, we need to take into account the differences in the spatial distribution of households between these two different contexts. And a failure to do that, again, is going to lead us to quite inaccurate predictions about the size of spillover effects. And at an even more basic level, we just need to know the location of the households in the untreated villages. We just need to know how many households there are that are affected by spillover effects because ultimately we want to aggregate a total spillover effect across all untreated households. Now, one difficulty that arises here is that even though uh, whilst the academic studies do collect information on the location of households in untreated villages, unfortunately this isn't something that directly collects. This isn't, you know, this is fairly understandable. We wouldn't expect a charity to spend a load of additional resources going and collecting information in uh, in areas that it doesn't even implement its program. But it does make it very difficult for us to extrapolate these academic study estimates to uh, predict the effect of Give Directly's program. Okay, but hopefully the uh, so so. Yeah, we can't do a lot to, uh, to, to deal with this at the moment. In the future, we're going to try and uh, hopefully find some low-cost ways of collecting information on the location of these households in the surrounding villages. But hopefully, the bigger point that you can take from this first case study is that if we want to understand the, if we want to extrapolate the effect of an academic study to a specific charity's program, we need to uh, think carefully about the mechanism that's driving the effect, and then we need to think about con- contextual factors in the in a specific charity setting that might affect the way that that mechanism operates. And doing that often requires that we go and find additional data or additional information from other sources in order to make some adjustments in our, in our model. So another example of this comes from a project that we undertook to evaluate Fortify Health's iron fortification program in India. Fortify Health provides support to millers to fortify their wheat flour with iron in order to reduce rates of anemia. So we found a meta-analysis of academic studies that has, uh, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials specifically that has estimated the effect of iron fortification. And the question again for us is, how do we take this academic estimate of the effect of iron fortification and use it to predict the effect of fortify health programs specifically in some other context? The first step to do this is to just outline exactly how this program works. In terms of, I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of quick overview. So Fortify Health provides um, an iron fortificant to millers. This is essentially a, a powder that contains the additional iron. And they also provide equipment and training so that the millers can integrate that fortificant into their, uh, into their production process in order to get the iron into the wheat flour. Millers will then sell this fortified wheat flour on the open market. Consumers purchase the wheat flour they use the wheat flour to prepare food, things like rotis. They'll then eat the food, ingest in the iron, and then the iron needs to actually be absorbed into the blood before it can have any health effect. So let's zoom in on those last two steps. And to be clear, we uh, we make adjustments in our cost-effectiveness model for issues that come up in the first three steps. So it may be the case that some of the fortified wheat flour is lost because it goes unsold on the on the shelves in the market or because maybe some is wasted during food preparation. But But let's just zoom in on those last two steps. At the point that consumers are actually eating the the, uh, fortified wheat flour, can we take the academic study, the meta-analysis estimate of the effect of iron fortification and sort of assume it's a reasonable guess for the effect of Fortify health program specifically? And there are a few reasons why it might not be. The first is the quantity of iron that is ingested through different iron fortification programs can vary quite a bit. This might be for a couple of reasons. First, it may be that different programs just add a different amount of iron to a given quantity of food. And secondly, it may just be that in different contexts, consumers eat a different amount of the fortified food. So what we did was we went back to each of the 18 uh, academic studies underlying the meta-analysis. And in each case, we backed out the total additional amount of iron that consumers ingest as a result of the fortified food. So that requires taking information on the quantity of iron that's added per 100 grams of the food, the amount of additional food you eat, the additional fortified food you eat per day, the number of days per week that you consume the fortified food for, and the duration of the program. In this table, we've aggregated things uh, annually, but we've done this for different lengths of time as well. And what we find is that the uh, average participant in the academic studies consumes an additional 1903 milligrams of iron per year as a result of this fortified food. Now we compared this to our best guess for the uh, additional iron that's ingested through Fortify Health program. And we believe that the average consumer in Fortify Health's program will only ingest about 67% as much additional iron through the fortified food as the average participant in the academic studies. So at first glance, it seems like Fortify Health program is probably going to have quite a bit less of an effect than the effect in the academic meta-analysis. But what we saw before is what matters is not the amount of iron that you ingest, but actually the amount of iron that's absorbed into your blood. It's only when it's absorbed into the blood that it can have an effect on your health. And conditional on the amount of, uh, on the quantity of iron that you ingest, the amount that you absorb into the blood depends on several additional factors. So the first of these is the fortification compound that's used to deliver the iron into the body. Fortify Health uses something that's known as sodium iron EDTA. But the academic studies use a range of different compounds, um, things like ferrous sulfate, uh, ferrous fumarate, ferric pyrophosphate, and uh, a lot of other long science words. Um, So we went back to the academic literature, and we asked, uh, are there any studies that have tried to estimate the difference in absorption rates across fortification compounds? And more specifically, we looked at evidence from what are known as isotopic studies. These are studies that provide participants with food that's fortified using different compounds. They label the iron. And so when you take a blood draw from participants after they have consumed the fortified food, you can trace exactly where the iron came from, which fortification compound it came from. And using that, you can back out an absorption rate for each fortification compound. If you look at the... uh, So this this table comes from a literature review that was conducted by Bothwell and McPhail. um, And if you look at the third column in the top row... They estimate that the rate of iron absorption from sodium iron EDTA, which is uh, Fortify Health's compound, is about 2.3 times the rate of iron absorption from ferrous sulfate, which is one of the compounds that's used in the academic studies, in wheat products. And more generally, we found that the rate of iron absorption from sodium iron EDTA, Fortify health compound, is quite a bit greater than the rate of iron absorption from the compounds that are used in the academic studies. Now, when we make an adjustment for this, in addition to the adjustment that we made previously for the differences in quantities of iron... We predict that Fortify Health program, the average consumer in Fortify Health program, actually absorbs about 167% as much iron into the blood as the average participant in the academic studies. And so actually we'd expect Fortify Health program to have quite a bit greater effect than the effect that was estimated in the meta-analysis in the academic literature. But we're not done yet. There's at least two additional factors that affect the absorption of iron. So the first is the substances that you consume alongside the fortified food. Some substances will inhibit the rate of absorption and others will enhance the rate of absorption. We're particularly worried here about tea consumption. So it's been shown in several studies that tea significantly in- inhibits the absorption of iron, even when it's delivered through this sodium iron EDTA compound. And secondly, we're worried about the differences, potential differences in baseline iron levels between the participants in the academic studies and the consumers of Fortify Health's program. Take this with a little bit of a pinch of salt because we've not investigated it deeply yet, but there's some suggestion in the academic literature that the rate of iron absorption is greater when your initial baseline iron levels are lower. Now, unfortunately, we don't have information on the uh, diets of either the consumers of Fortify Health program or the participants in the academic studies, and we also don't have information on the baseline iron levels of Fortify Health consumers. So for the time being, we've not been able to make additional adjustments for these two factors, and we'd certainly like to get some more information on this if we can in the future, particularly for the consumers of uh, a Fortify Health program. Um, but yeah, hopefully the bigger point that you can take from, from this, uh, from this study is that if we want to, from this case study is that if we want to extrapolate the effects uh, of an academic from an academic study the effect of iron fortification in this case to a specific charities program we again need to think about the mechanism that's driving the effect of the program and then think about local conditions specific contextual factors that might affect the way that, that mechanism operates in the charity setting and then we potentially need to go and find additional data go to other academic literatures try to collect some additional information in order to make some adjustments to our model and what's more, this kind of issue arises even when we're just are trying to understand the, the like purely biological effects of what seems like a, a fairly straightforward health intervention like iron fortification. So we might expect these kind of concerns and the sorts of questions that come up to be uh, a lot more difficult if we're considering a more complicated behaviour intervention, say something like a, an intervention to increase educational attainment. Okay, so how can we do this better in the future? So... Hopefully you can see from these two case studies where the kind of issues that come up depend and the kind of like questions that arise depend a lot on exactly what the intervention is and what the mechanism driving the effect of that intervention is. So it's a little bit hard to, to make general prescriptions, but we think there's at least two uh, ways that we can be in a better position for 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 this in future. The first is we'd like to just understand better what other policy organizations are doing to tackle these external validity questions. We've spoken to some uh, other organizations. We're aware of some other approaches. Um, j approach to generalizability, for example, which Sam and Gael um, presented yesterday in the workshop for those who are there. But we'd like to just see a few more concrete examples of exactly what steps other organizations are taking to make these external validity adjustments in practice. Perhaps something like the case studies that have been laid out here, but, but going into a bit more detail. And secondly, we'd like to... Um, Second, we'd like to see if, uh, academics could spend a little bit more time discussing these kind of external validity issues, um, discussing some of the contextual factors that are, they think arose in the, in the study setting that they, um, that they worked in. Um, our understanding is that most academics spend the vast majority of their time focusing on ruling out threats to internal validity and we, That's kind of understandable. I don't think you'll get a better publication or be in a higher impact journal if you're addressing some of the questions that I've raised here. So perhaps we need to think of ways to incentivize academics to do a little bit more on external validity. But hopefully from this presentation, you'll have just a bit more of a feel for the kind of questions that come up when you're actually trying to go through these steps and work out uh, what adjustments you need to make for external validity in practice if you're working for an organization like GiveWell. And, uh, and yeah, if you have any thoughts on these two questions um, or any other questions about the presentation, I know we've got a little bit of time for Q&A now, but if um, if anyone's around, I have an office hours at 4.30 in the Queen Ballroom. Thanks. <clears throat> I guess first a real simple one. Uh, I don't think you mentioned
1: what the actual results are on the spillover, so I was just curious right. <laughs> uh, to to get a little bit of information about that.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah so this is a tricky one. Um, so what we want, what we wanted to do originally was to do what I sort of hinted at in the, in the second slide, which was to actually uh, work out a spillover effect at each distance and then work out the total number of households that live at each distance and then add up the spillover effects across all the households to get this total spillover effect and make this adjustment quantitatively. Unfortunately, because we don't have the location of the, un, of the households in the untreated villages, we just can't do that. So for the time being, we've had to just do a kind of a very second best thing, which is make a sort of qualitative judgment based on our read of the most relevant, what we think are the most relevant studies to give the Rekley's context. Um, in terms of the actual bottom line, that comes out at a sort of 5% negative um, adjustment. Uh, and that is a sort of, as I say, much more of a qualitative, subjective guess than what we would like to do um making these kind of adjustments. And that was basically because some of the studies found a negative effect, some found no effect, some other studies found a positive effect. And we didn't believe there was sort of strong evidence um, taken in the literature as a whole that there were sort of large negative or positive spillover effects. Um, but yeah, we unfortunately couldn't make the sort of qu- quantitative adjustments that we made in the Fortify Health case to the spillovers case. So um, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't quite as like gotcha. exact as we would have liked. So best guess for the moment is for every dollar given Given to
1: a household somebody not too far away effectively loses five
0: cents of purchasing power um i think it's more so the adjust the way we've actually built in the adjustment is more that the we've decreased the the total value of the program by five five percent or the cost effectiveness of the, of the program is increased by five uh, is, is, is decreased by five percent so i think it's not quite as uh even quite as explicit as like Got fracturing it. out exactly okay. what the change in consumption is, because again, we don't even know how many households are affected per treated household. Um, so even doing something like that is is kind of actually quite tricky. Um, so how do you? Well, a striking aspect of your
1: talk here is just that these issues are not obvious at all from the beginning. So how do you when you sit down to kind of try to attack a problem like this? How do you begin to identify
0: the issues that might cause this? lack of transferability in the first place? Um, So I think the first step is just to outline exactly how you think the program works. I guess some people call it a theory of change or whatever, you know, a causal mechanism. Um, So I think just literally writing out each of the steps that you think needs to um, sort of be operating for the program to work and then just address each step in turn. And I think just just kind of critically think about what might go wrong. I think I always approach it from the perspective of how do I think this is just going to fall down? What what about the local context might mean that this step in the mechanism just doesn't operate? Um, that's obviously quite hard to do if you're a desk-based researcher uh, like we are at GiveWell. So I think something that helps us quite a lot is to engage with the charities themselves. Fortify Health, uh, in particular for this case, uh, we engaged very closely with them and they were able to raise some of these issues as well. And then we could go away and look at, um, you know try and find some data for some of the issues that they that they raised. But um, so I think, yeah, some collaboration with, with, uh, with the charities themselves. And I think that's part of the reason why I'd like to see maybe academics discuss this more because they may be in a better position to just be aware of what conceptual factors might really matter for the key mechanisms because they're conducting the field work on the ground um, in a way that's hard for us to do from, from a, a desk-based research position. So I'm sure you've this will
1: probably apply more and less to different programs, but I'm sure you've thought also about just going out and attempting to measure these things directly as opposed to sort of doing the, the theoretical adjustments. So when you think about That, what prevents you from doing it? Is that just too costly and intensive in itself to go out and essentially replicate? Would you essentially be replicating the studies or would you be able to go and do kind of a distinct process to measure the results of programs in a sort of non academic setting?
0: Yeah, so I think, I think replicating the studies, hopefully this kind of approach can maybe move away from, so hopefully if you take this sort of approach to it, you don't need to replicate every single study in, in every different context that you want to implement a, a charities program. Um, and it's more a case that you just think about what, you know, what step might fall down in a particular context and then maybe go and measure the information that's directly relevant to that step that you think might fall down as, as sort of outlined in the, in the study. Um, I think why we don't do this ourselves is probably just, um, we don't, have the sort of in-house expertise to be doing a lot of this data collection. Um, but I think it's something we should consider more. Maybe we could uh, sort of outsource some of this work to other organizations and, and so, yeah, price it up and um, and we'd have to sort of have a bit of a model of how cost-effective the research funding itself would be, you know, given how much money it might then affect um, later being donated to some of the charities. But I think it's something we could we could definitely consider.
1: Okay. Very interesting. So we've got a bunch of questions coming in from the app. Let me see how many we can get to. Um, how do you account for different degrees of uncertainty or complexity in the causal chains across the interventions that you study? So you showed one that had a five degree causal chain. Seemingly you would prefer things that had two
0: levels and, you know, and disfavor those that had 10, but how do you think about that? Um, So, I think we don't have like a rule of, uh, you know, if there's too many steps, it's too complicated and we wouldn't consider it. I think in each case, we, we would just lay out what they are. And then if we think that, um, there's one of those steps that's just so uncertain and we really can't get any information on it at all. And and we really feel that it's going to have a massive impact on the bottom line and we, and we are just yeah, totally uncertain, I think then we would just write that up and, and probably sort of refrain from making any grants or anything and, and just um, sort of put a post out there saying that, you know, here's the clear step that we're not, we're very unsure about at the moment and we need further academic study and we need to see this, this or this, or whatever, before we can move a step, make a step forward. Um, yeah, as you say, it would be nice for everything I think it was just a sort of one step thing, but uh, but I don't think we would sort of ignore an intervention because it has quite a few steps and maybe more uncertainty. Which academics
1: would you recommend as currently doing good work in the question of external validity?
0: Um, <laughs> honestly, I'm not sure that like, I have specific names of people who I think are consistently doing a lot of this. Um, I should have a Give better, well. should have, <laughs> I should have a better answer for this, but um, yeah, I mean, no one's jumping out I, again at the moment. I, it seems to me like in general these kind of questions are more commented on in a paragraph or two in the discussion at the end of the paper and it feels more like a throwaway comment than something that as people have put a lot of thought into in, in, in academic studies. Um, yeah, I'll dig out a name for you. I'll try and, try and find someone. <laughs> You've maybe sort of talked to this a little uh, bit already with my first question, but how do you
1: decide how deeply to investigate a given link in the causal chain as you're trying to work out the overall impact of a program?
0: Um, so we try to, I think with everything we do, it's very sort of, um, I don't know, kind of like hierarchical. So for everything, we'll try and do like a, an initial base overview, like a very, very quick investigation. I think this applies to stuff more generally than external validity adjustments that give well. So we'll try to take a sort of quick view of things and then get a sense of whether we really think it's going to have a big impact on the bottom line. And the bigger impact we think it's going to have on the bottom line, then the more we'll be willing to spend staff time uh, going more deeply and, and get really getting into the weeds of the question. So I think it's a very kind of like step-by-step process um, of the amount of time that we spend. Okay. A couple more. How do you weigh the, for example, say
1: you have a relatively recent um, and seemingly you know, directly applicable RCT versus kind of a broad scope of of RCTs that, you know, so cash transfers would be a good example of this, right? It's been studied in a lot of different contexts, but maybe you can point to one study that's pretty close to the context of a program. How do you think about the the relative weights of
0: those more similar versus kind of broad base of studies that you might consider? Um, So I think in some cases, we actually do concretely try to put weights on each each study. Um, I think in terms of, so i th- i think we don't want to confuse like a study just happening in a in a sort of in the same country or something like that i think we want to just really think carefully about i mean if there's a study that's conducted in a different co- in a different country but we you know think that the the steps in the in the causal chain are going to operate exactly the same because there's no real sort of massive difference in the contextual factors then i think we wouldn't sort of massively downweight a study because it's conducted in a different context um in terms of uh, I guess if you have lots of different studies, then, and each of them has a little bit of weight, then that's going to drag some weight away from, like, one study that you really think is very, very directly relevant. But, uh, yeah, I think in it, we just take it on a case-by-case basis and try to actually, in some cases, concretely place, place different weights on each study in some uh, informal meta-analysis. Um, and that involves just thinking through each of these steps and, and how we think, uh, you know, trying to, trying to think about what similarity really means and, and what, f- what uh, specific local conditions we need to be the same for a, con- for a, for a study to really be a sort of similar context. We're a little bit over time already, so this will have to be the last one, and then you can
1: follow up with Dan at office hours coming up uh, during our next break at four thirty. If you want to go deeper on this topic, when you identify these issues that sort of seem to imply, you know, changes, I assume they're normally, you know, to the less effective uh, direction. I wonder if you maybe find some that suggest that things are, you did, you did note one that was, uh, moving things toward more effective, but do you then go back and talk to the original study authors
0: and communicate to them what you found? And has that been a fruitful collaboration for you guys at all? That's not something we've done so far. Um, and that seems like it would be a reasonably, um, yeah, a reasonably good idea, and something we maybe should do a bit more in future. But yeah, c- certainly in the projects that I've worked on, that's not something we've done so far. So yeah, it's a, a good, uh, a good piece of advice. Good question. Yeah. Well, it is always a lesson
1: in uh, epistemic humility when we talk to uh, folks from GiveWell, but you guys do great work uh, and think very deeply. So thank you for that. How about another round of applause for Dan Brown?
0: <laughs>
1: great job.